right, you guys, go ahead and find a seat. Man, great to see you. Right on. Ah, Nicola, what's up, brother? Man, it's so good to see you. All right. I think you guys are like a little extra chatty today. I love it. Um, hey, you guys, if we haven't met, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors. And man, I am just so eager uh, to get into our passage today. But I just want to say it is so sweet to worship with you guys. Um, as we often say here, like we are a community that's just following after Jesus. And one of the biggest like expressions of worship is through singing praise. And um, I'm going to be quoting a little bit later on like Revelation chapter 5, which is like the song of heaven joined in with like the four living creatures and all of the hosts, the angels and all of that. We're joining in and we get to join in today, which is such a beautiful thing. So you guys, Today, uh, we are beginning our brand new series for Riverbend here in the letter to the Galatians. I've been looking forward to this uh, for months now. And this is where we're going to be for the foreseeable future, through the spring and into the early summer, where we're going to be studying God's word line by line and responding faithfully, we hope, uh, to what he's teaching us. And today we're just kind of doing like a, like a macro overview, if you will, of the letter. So a little bit of history and culture, a lot of Bible verses. And, uh, and then next week we're going to get into the exegetical uh, study, sort of line by line, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. But with that, let's, uh, let's all stand together uh, for the reading of Scripture. You guys, I hope you have an appetite for Galatians, because Galatians is a powerful book. All right, this comes from Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have your seat. Amen. So this is about 80-50. 20 or so years, give or take, after Jesus announced the good news of the kingdom, that the, the gospel is now here. And then he died on the cross, as you know, and three days later, on Easter morning, he rose again, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to fill his people and launch the church. And already, the church, just 20 years into it, is in the fight for its life. And the threat at the time was not the Roman Empire or outside, persecu or outside persecution that comes later, a couple decades later, but the threat came from just a group of Christian leaders who had a good reputation and who had a lot of pull in the community and who thought that they were doing the right thing. But in reality, these Christian leaders were totally wrongheaded about all kinds of things. And they were taking actions to fundamentally change the gospel that Jesus gave us both in message and in practice. Now, we really don't talk about this sort of early church crisis all that often, and there's probably a lot of reasons why. Number one, we, we idealize the first-generation church. Like, we whitewash our history a little bit. We've always done that. That's a human thing. I think we were kind of predisposed to it. 
But what we're going to find throughout the course of this letter is that we are just as broken and in need of grace as the first generation of Jesus followers, which from where I'm standing is hopeful and um, gives me a lot of courage. We also um, like um, lose sight of or have forgotten this controversy because they're sort of lost in translation for us because the Bible is a little bit of an ancient text. But I would submit to you that it would be a mistake for us um, to sort of lose track of um, this early church con- controversy because once we understand what this threat was, then I promise you this letter is going to come into vivid color and it will prove to be the exact thing that our church needs to hear in Bend, Oregon, 2022. And we believe the scripture says that it's living and active and it comes to life in the embodied church. And so our hope and prayer is that we wouldn't just be like hearing the word, but that as we listen to the teachings of the scriptures, that we would apply it to our lives and that it would fundamentally change the world around us. And if this message is any indication, we know that that is not not just possible, but it's an imminent reality for those of us who are in Jesus. So the main reason why Paul is writing to the Galatians with great passion and wit and anger, by the way, like we're going to see his frustration working itself out throughout the pages of this letter. Um, The reason why he's writing is he's reminding them and us about the true gospel, that Jesus is king and anyone, and if you're taking notes, write this down and underline it three times, anyone who trusts in him is forgiven and is healed and belongs in the one new family of God. And amen. Thank you, Moses. Amen. This is the core message of the letter to the Galatians. It's also the core of Jesus' gospel. There is a higher value and a higher truth about Jesus that unifies us despite the many things that threaten to break us apart. Let me say that again. The thing that unites us about Jesus is higher and greater than the many things that threaten to break us apart. So you guys are smart. You're already beginning to intuit what we're going to be talking about here today or the subject of this controversy. The early church was disunified. The early church was disunified and they were fighting each other over things that didn't matter anymore. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Maybe just a few of us. Specifically, they were breaking fellowship. They were refusing to eat together and refusing to take the Lord's Supper together. These sacred church practices that Jesus had instituted for us to take and to remember him were being broken up over the same old disagreements about race and religious traditions. And so Paul is willing to stake his entire life and his, and his whole message and his whole uh, reputation on this issue. He says, this cannot happen, not on my watch. Divisions amongst the people of God cannot continue. We have to fight for the unity and the family of God. And this is an argument that I know that you've heard before and you've probably even heard it from me. But Paul is taking it like several steps further in Galatians when he says that the gospel itself, like the furnace of the Jesus movement, is exactly what is at stake here. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 says this, I'm astonished. That you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no, no gospel at all. 
And evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So this isn't exactly pleasure reading. Um, Paul has a lot of hard-hitting things to say, which we're going to talk about all of them in the course of the couple of months, next couple of months. So who were these people? And what was their message? You know, these people who were dividing the church, who were they and, and what was their message? Well, fortunately, we have a historical record of that in Luke's book, The Gospel or the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So um, in Acts chapter 12 and 13, um, Paul and Barnabas are in a place called Antioch, which is important to note, is outside of Israel. So the gospel is about 20 years old or so, and it's already gone international. It's crossed over state lines, it's crossed the border. And more importantly, it's been received by small groups of Gentiles, non-Jewish people like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and so on. So during a time of prayer, uh, Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the Holy Spirit to go on a missionary journey throughout the whole province of Galatia. So Galatia is not just a city, it's like a whole province with many cities within it. Cities like Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, you can find all of these stories of the gospel going out in these cities in, uh, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And all of these were like Gentile cities, but they had small Jewish communities within them. So they, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they spend the better part of two years like on the road sharing the gospel, going from city to city, and establishing brand new churches throughout Galatia. And a lot of the people who believe in the gospel are from the family of Israel. They're a part of those minority Jewish communities. Um, and that's because Paul is Jewish and Jesus was also Jewish and Paul's still doing a lot of the Jewish traditions, including going to synagogue and all of that. But there's also like non-Jewish people who also believe, and they become members in the family of God. And, and, and to us, like, there's literally no scandal there whatsoever, because most of us, if not the majority of us, are, are Gentiles. We, we are non-Jewish people. Um, but during the time of Paul and Barnabas and his first generation, man, it was really scandalous. And by the time uh, Paul and Barnabas got back from that first missionary journey, there was that controversy had already begun to sort of spin out of control. Look with me at Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, where it says this. Uh, certain people came down from Judea, that was um, around Jerusalem, in Israel, to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. <laughs> I love that. By, by the way, you're welcome for bringing up circumcision. I know that's everybody's favorite topic on church on Sunday. Some of you are sitting next to you like your in-laws, and we brought it, whatever. So this other message uh, that is coming up, uh, that, that Paul is taking issue with is coming from Jewish Christians from around Jerusalem who were, let's be clear, affirming the Jesus message. They said, yeah, the, the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. God is with us. And through his life and his death and his resurrection and ascending of the Spirit, ascension into heaven, you can be forgiven and accepted and belong in the family of God. How? Like, what is the one condition that the scriptures give for salvation? This salvation is for anyone who believes, like whoever trusts in the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's, it's important to note that these Jewish Christians, they affirmed all of that. 
They believed it all. They didn't take anything away. They just added another condition. They said, oh, and by the way, you also have to become Jewish. You got to do all of the Jewish customs. You got to trade in your culture. Your family of origin, your national heritage, all of your customs, your entire story. You got to trade that in. And instead, you got to adopt ours. And this is what Paul is all up in arms about. Even though he's Jewish, and like uh, very Jewish, you might say. Um, he, he followed a lot of these customs into his older life as a follower of Jesus. But he's saying, listen, this is wrong. That is another gospel that we should not be teaching the Gentiles. So we need to sort of have... Uh, some understanding and some grace for these other Jewish Christians because it's easy for us to cast judgment on people and on ideas that we don't really understand. But then we'd be sort of missing the point of why this is such an important message for us to hear and receive in Bend 2022 because I promise you all of this tracks and is super important for us to internalize. Um, but we need some help sort of seeing what this controversy actually was. Okay, so... Um, again, what the Jewish Christians thought they were doing is they thought they were doing God's work. And my friend Evan puts it like this. While they were trying to preserve the purity of the family, they were actually destroying family unity. So again, they thought they were helping Paul and helping the Jesus movement by going behind him and sort of cleaning things up a bit and telling the, Jew, uh, the, the new followers of Jesus, oh, here, here's a couple more things that you need to know. Here's a couple more things that you must do in order to be saved and all of that. And, uh, and, and Paul is saying, no, 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 that, that could not be further from the truth. In fact, that's another gospel. So from their perspective, their traditions and their culture and their ethnic heritage was an essential part of what it is to be in the family of God. And it actually makes more sense than you might think. See, today you can be a Jewish person by heritage only. You can be an, an atheist or a non-practicing Jew. You could be in just for like the food and the holidays and all of that and still consider yourself a Jewish person. And that's exactly true. But in the first century, being a Jew meant being a part of an ethnic group whose religion could not be removed from your culture. They were linked, they were one and the same, and they couldn't be pulled apart. So this meant like at least a couple of things. Number one, it meant that in order to be in the family of God, you had to be ethnically Jewish. Father Abraham's blood was coursing through your veins. And this was a point of pride for you if you were a Jewish person because, after all, God did choose Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and he performed all kinds of miracles for his family to sustain them and to uh, populate the earth with them. And he, of course, promised to bless them. And this was a point of pride. They, they, were, they were proud of this reality that they had been chosen by God. Number two, it meant that the promised land was home. The promised land was home. So uh, at the time of Jesus in the 50s AD, where we are today uh, in Galatia, um, you could, uh, you know, scatter pretty much anywhere in the earth. And there were Jews in just about every corner of the Roman world. But the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is where the presence of God was. And so that was like your place of worship. And it was your true center. And so if you are a Jewish person, you might scatter to all different parts of the earth, but that's where you come home, and that's the center where you find relationship with God. Number three, it also meant that you lived the Torah. 
You observed the old covenant. You ate kosher. All males were circumcised, as we read a moment ago. You observed all of the feasts and attended synagogue. That was everything for you. This was not just rote religion. It was quite literally your entire culture and heritage and everything else. Number four, it also meant that you were hoping in uh, Messiah. You're hoping in Messiah. And according to the promise in Isaiah that if you were a Jewish person, you would have had memorized, the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then, as you know, it says, the, uh, and the, um, the, the greatness of his reign, there will be no end. So to the Jewish person, Messiah was a socio-political ruler who would bring an end to all of the violent and oppressive regimes like Rome. And this was not like a mistaken sort of a thing. That's exactly what the scriptures were teaching. And the disciples of Jesus were fixated on this. If you read Mark chapter 10 or Acts chapter 1, you can read. They're just really interested in, okay, now is the time where you're going to like set up your throne in Jerusalem and you're going to set everything right and we're going to destroy all of the competing powers and political powers in the world. See, they were fixated on it. Of course, Jesus said, it's not yours to know the hour of time. That's for my Father in heaven. But he's saying, you go and be my witnesses, right? So, but if you were uh, a Jewish person, you would uh, associate the Messiah as being a socio-political ruler. And then number five, finally, it meant that you were chosen by God. It meant you were chosen by God. And, and again, to be clear, they were not being delusional. They were not making this up. Under the Abrahamic covenant, they were completely correct. The Old Testament scriptures revealed to them time and again through the prophets and um, the, the Psalms and the Proverbs, that you are my chosen people, you are my special possession. Of course, to redeem the whole world, but for them, they were, had internalized that as their national identity. They were chosen by God, the special possession of him. And so it's really important to sort of wrestle with this for a bit, a minute. Um, Jesus actually saw himself as a part of that story as well. He was a Jewish man. He participated in all of the Jewish customs. He, as you know, obeyed the Mosaic covenant. And um, he saw himself not just as uh, a Jewish man, but the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of these old covenant promises. You might remember in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at that line where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. So he saw himself as the fulfillment of the old covenant promise to Israel. So again, if you were a Jewish person, and if you were a Jesus follower, your faith in Jesus you did not see as like a departure. It was in complete continuity with your Jewish heritage. So you, you would go to synagogue on, on Saturday with your other Jewish uh, brothers and sisters. And then on Sunday, you took the Lord's Supper and you gathered from house to house with other Christians. So go with me on this thought experiment for a moment. If that was your background and your entire identity, when non-Jewish people who were not only not of Jewish descent, but they also didn't observe Jewish traditions that in your mind, Jesus came and prophetically fulfilled. But they also, not only that, but they also had their own ethnic culture of their own that they brought into the church, music and, and, and food, sacrifice to idols and, and art and all kinds of non-Jewish traditions. So they were all together in one new family and trying to make it work, but it was extremely messy. It was really messy. Um, did anybody watch the NFC Championship game last weekend? 
Yeah, so if you're not a football person, I rarely watch a football game live, actually, because I'm normally at church, but I watch the highlight reel to this one. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the like main stories coming out of the NFC Championship game, if you're not familiar, um, the LA Rams played the San Francisco 49ers. So uh, both teams are from California, so that made it really interesting. When the, when the game was set in Los Angeles and things like that, um, thousands, and I mean thousands of 49er fans bought tickets and then drove down to L.A. So what should have been like a home game for the L.A. Rams turned out to be a wash at best. Like 50% of, you can look at the footage, 50% of the people or more were wearing red and not blue and they were cheering for the 49ers. So if you were an L.A. Ram or one of the fans, they were furious. They were livid about this. It felt like their sacred home stadium had been taken over by the enemy, right? And, uh, and in fact, like, this became a trending story. Like, I was reading articles on it, and there were thousands of comments of people cursing each other out, right? So what else is new? Like, that's kind of exactly what you'd expect to see. Um, so again, what should have been a home game favoring the Rams turned out to not be that at, at all. So, so that's kind of like what it must have felt like to be a Jewish Christian, when Gentile believers came into the church without observing Jewish traditions, they were saying, well, gosh, I, I guess we need to accept you, but you got to put a Rams jersey on. Like, you can't, you can't come in with your 49er gear. Like, that was the, <laughs> we got some L.A. fans in the mix. Um, so that metaphor works. I don't know. It's like every metaphor breaks down eventually, but, but it works a little bit anyways. But that wasn't even really the half of it, though, because if you know the story of the Bible, man, you know the Jews and the Gentiles had history. They had history. There were, um, of course, the story of the Egyptians in, in, in Exodus, where they are enslaved for 400 years, and then God rescues them from the Egyptians only to be in constant conflict with the Canaanites who committed like genocide and all kinds of horrible evils and things like that. And then the Babylonians came and they turned Jerusalem into rubble and they haul off Israel into exile. And it's not a pretty picture. They're followed not too long after by the violent Assyrians who were extremely cruel. And then the Greeks came in the second century B.C. Um, and they oppressed them even more at the hands of Alexander the Great. So during the time of the first generation church, man, this was the Roman Empire's turn to oppress the Israelites. And they had like a special flair for being cruel and domineering. And they overtaxed them and oppressed them in all kinds of different ways. So again, putting yourself in the Jewish perspective, they had all of this 1,500 year long history leading up to their present day of evil like being tortured and killed and taxed and made a mockery of because they worshipped Yahweh, all at the hands of these Gentiles that then they're now being expected to welcome in with open arms. So now you can begin to sort of gain some appreciation for, for the perspective of the ancient Jewish person. There's us in the family of God, and then there's everyone else in the other ethnic groups outside of the family of God. There's, the, there's another bucket of everyone else out there, and then there's us inside the family of God. Again, especially given the reality that this separation was commanded in the Old Testament for a time, 
the Jews were commanded to live separately as a part of ushering in the Messiah. But what they had lost, and if I, and if I lost you for a couple of minutes because I went into all the cultural stuff, come back to me because this is where it gets really good. Um, th- what they had lost was that now that the Messiah was here, and now that the Messiah had poured out his Holy Spirit, that separation was no longer needed, and that had always been God's plan. Um, In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul hammers home the exact same theme. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's referring to Gentile Christians saying, hey, have a little respect for the family of Israel here. For he himself is our peace who made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by, but setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. Much more on that um, as we get into chapter 2 of Galatians. But his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So you guys, this was... God's plan from the very beginning was to restore and to redeem and to reconcile people to himself. Not that there would be every ethnic group and every sort of bifurcation and tribe off in their own little world, but that there would be one united family of God that's being represented by every tribe, tongue, and nation. It wasn't that God wanted Gentiles to trade in their culture for circumcision and becoming basically Jewish, or that Jewish, Jews had to give up their, their, their religious traditions of observing Sabbath and things like that. He didn't want one culture to dominate the other culture or other ethnicity. He wanted to make one entirely new family that honored and unified every tribe, tongue, and nation. You guys, this is the vision of God from the whole of scriptures. This is what he had always planned and he always wanted. And he foretold that through the prophets and then it was ultimately realized through Jesus. So Jesus in the gospels, he welcomes and he honors Gentile women. Which if you know the history and culture of of Judaism, you know how profoundly countercultural that was in Jesus' day. But it was clearly the heart of God from the very beginning. One scholar puts it like this. In Messiah Jesus, Jesus, something shocking, scandalous, unexpected, and dramatically different has happened. But when you grasp its inner core of meaning, you realize that this was the point of the ancient promise upon which Israel had lived for two millennia. God has acted shockingly, surprisingly, unexpectedly, as he always said that he would. So you guys, this is the poetic irony of God's redemption through the cross. See, the promise to Abraham was, I will bless you. Not so that you could sit around feeling morally superior that God chose me over somebody else. But it had always been, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing So if we don't come to terms with the reality that Jesus has radically accepted us, he's radically accepted us, then we cannot really come to terms with the fact that he has radically accepted others who are different from me. So this was sort of the problem in Galatia that was rising to the surface. It's time. It's time to make room and to celebrate 
the other ethnicities in the one new family of God with all of the messiness of the clashing of cultures will bring. And so um, there's no like glossing over. In fact, the scripture doesn't seem to suggest that it's going to be easy for a multi-ethnic family to be forged in a new world with Jesus. But the reality is, is that that is exactly what the scripture, scriptures are teaching us to do. And the apostle Peter, he comes to this realization years late, years into the gospel story. He's been sharing the gospel across Israel for years. And then he finally wakes up to the reality that God wants the Gentiles in the the family of God as well. In Acts chapter 10, he kind of receives this vision, which I'm not going to get into today, but he winds up at Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10, who's a God-fearing Gentile. And um, he had these instructions from the Spirit to just sort of share the gospel, which was foreign to him. He didn't think that that would be the right thing to do in the Galatians house, or in in the house of uh, someone who was not a, a Jewish person. But he sort of takes a shot at it. And right in the middle of the message, if you know the story, Cornelius and his whole household interrupts Peter's message because they had received the Holy Spirit and were speaking in tongues. And, and Peter's just astonished. He's stunned at this. He never pictured this, but he's witnessing it with, with his own eyes. And so he couldn't deny it. But then Peter has to go back and to explain to all of his Jewish buddies in the church what had just happened. And so this is what the scripture says in Acts chapter 11. It says, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea had heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem and and the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised and you ate with them. Like, you put on a ram's jersey. How dare you? But then he explains the whole thing. He says, man, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John will baptize with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? I love that. So when he heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Come on, you guys. That's so good. They had nothing else to say. They were just like, you know what? I guess we got to praise God then because Gentiles are in the family of God. It's so good. Same thing happened in Acts chapter 15 when Paul's all like all fired up and all up in arms about this other gospel that's going out around Galatia. And so he um, goes uh, to Jerusalem to sort of have it out with the Jewish Christians and things like that. And so they have this council. So that they can hear Paul out. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this is what I love what it says. In Acts chapter 15 verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. So essentially what they're saying is listen like man the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Man that is the seal of God's approval. So if God is approving of it who am I? to stand in the way or to try and get in the way of what God wants to do. So if non-Jewish people receive the power of the Holy Spirit, then the debate is over. They are forgiven. They belong just as much as any Jewish person belongs in the one new family of God. So this was like the end of the debate. But it wasn't the end of all of the division in Galatia or anywhere else for that matter. It was the beginning of a new journey that was meant to bring reconciliation where 
the multi-ethnic family is finally coming together. But the fact remains that the racial tensions and ideological differences persisted throughout the first generation of Jesus followers, and they, of course, continue until today. You knew I couldn't avoid that, did you? Just there's no way that I can. See, we don't have issues of circumcision or Torah observance. I don't think there's any debates going on about like whether or not we should be eating kosher, you know, like catching each other eating bacon or something like that. I don't think that's happening. But it wasn't that long ago that the Western church rationalized slavery of human beings using Bible verses to do it. And I'm ashamed to say that my theological lineage and the denominational background that I have come from like had a part in perpetuating that injustice. And that was less than 200 years ago. And today, tribalism and partisanship has colonized the church in the West horribly. Tribalism uh, blindly accepts people inside the, their own tribe as virtuous. It's just like, it is a blind acceptance of one another. But disparages and vilifies people outside of the tribe. And social media and the rise of toxic misinformation has thrown gasoline on that dumpster fire. And things are festering in our culture. Um, and that's something that you know all too well. Today we have the tribes of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. Or the Trumps of order versus the woke social justice warrior. Or we have the Arminian versus the Calvinist or the Catholic versus the Protestant. And honestly, there's like a hundred others, but do you really want me to rattle them off? Because it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And the problem is festering. Two days ago, the renowned, like one of the most um, renowned voices in Christianity today, David Brooks, published this article in the U.S. Times. And in it, he writes this. Over the past few years, the atmosphere which many Christian organizations, within many Christian organizations, have grown more tense and bitter. As an evangelical friend of mine noted, what used to be open fields are now minefields. So if you invite such and such a speaker to your Christian college, it means you've surrendered to the woke brigades. Or you use this word in your sermon, then you're guilty of critical race theory, whatever. Pastors across the political spectrum are exhausted, partly because of COVID, but partly because every word they use is scrutinized to see if it passes this or that ideological litmus test. I feel that. Like, David Brooks sees me in his article. I appreciate that. In fact, uh, I recently, not too long ago, I learned about another pastor in town who called me a Nazi. Because I suggested that we should, like, on social media, that we should continue wearing masks as an expression of generous love to the vulnerable in our community and frontline workers. And that's exactly verbatim what I said. He didn't talk, call me about it. We didn't talk about it. He just called me a Nazi. Apparently to him, that makes me a Nazi, which is crazy. It's crazy. It's, really, it's laughable. Laughable. But I say that to say this. We have to be praying for the church. Because that is... The opposite of God's heart. Imagine disparaging and vilifying someone else in the family of God as a dangerous villain because of a disagreement that's not gospel related. It's tragic. But that's what's happening all over the place. So we need to pray for the church. So here is sort of the crux of, 
of what Paul is getting at, at least for today. According to Galatians, breaking fellowship with other Jesus followers over something that is not the gospel is another gospel. Does that make sense? Breaking fellowship with other Jesus followers over something that is not the gospel is another gospel. Because what we're doing there is we're making the thing that's different about us or the thing that we disagree about more significant or primary than the work of Jesus on the cross that's designed and, and meant to bring us together. So we're making the thing that's, that's, that should be secondary, we're making it primary, and we're making the cross secondary. That's another gospel. In fact, I, was, uh, I read another article this week about uh, Jimmy Kimmel professing his faith in Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And there was this podcast interview where he opened up about his faith. And I was like, oh, come on. So I read the article. I listened to the podcast. And everyone was kind of shocked about how open he was being. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that. But he's like, but I, I don't get really crazy with it, you know. Like for me, it's like pizza. And then it's comedy, and then it's my family, and then it's the Dodgers. And then, you know, somewhere down on the list, is Jesus Christ is there somewhere too. And of course, he's joking and all of that, but that's essentially the same thing. We're saying, uh, he's, he's kidding and everything else, but ideologically, he's putting other things in front of Jesus. But when it comes to the true gospel, man, our first allegiance and our first loyalty is to him. Which is, which is to say that if he calls me your brother and he calls you my sister, then that's what we are. And that's what we need to fight to maintain and preserve. And that is the order of the day. We have to stay true to the gospel. So the solution isn't for us to like point fingers, right? That would just be more... Being, becoming more a part of the problem. The solution is for us to examine our own hearts. So when we vilify others and break up into smaller and smaller tribes, we're actually just becoming more a part of the problem. We need to examine our own hearts in step with the Spirit and to confess any of our own tribalism. What are the tribes that I subscribe to? Who am I vilifying? Have I been harboring pretentious feelings of superiority over other people or over churches? Have I broke fellowship with anyone over non-gospel related issues? Have I wronged anyone and not sought reconciliation? In a minute, we're just going to reflect on that and we're going to pray that through. But one of the best things, we have to end on a, uh, on a high note because Paul always does that, right? So Paul, we're going to find, is super hard-hitting throughout this message. But he begins and he ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's always good news because of what Jesus has done. And so uh, one of the best things about the scriptures that I've come to appreciate is that God just tells us what his end game is. He says what will happen at the end of this age. And the book of, the, of Revelation is, is the primary book that sort of tells us about that. And uh, Revelation chapter 5 is this beautiful um, like image of Jesus returning on the clouds and all of heaven and earth celebrating him and worshiping him. And this is what the scripture says. By the way, I know I've read a lot of scripture today. But this is so significant. I wanted to cut it out. I cut a lot out of this message, but I couldn't cut this out. It's too good. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth 
And then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Poetic way of saying a ton of angels. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Come on. And then I, read, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That is our imminent future. If we are in Jesus, this is what our future will look like. So if this is God's end game, one unified church praising Jesus, where there's not like separate rooms and divisions for each of the 17,000 evangelical denominations in America, or the black church sits over here and the white church sits over here, or there's like a VIP section in the front for the reformed folks who got it mostly right. There's none of that. Like that's not what's going on. If that's not God's end game, but his end game is actually one renewed humanity around one throne and around one table who's represented by every tribe and tongue and nation where each one is valued and accepted and celebrated as an equally important expression of his personality and his creativity. If that is God's end game, then we have to be about that today. This is what we get to participate in. We get to be a part of the reconciliation of all things, which includes pioneering and forging a multi-ethnic family here in Bend, Oregon. So being a part of the church now means that we get to be able to live into all of those future realities here. This is a part of our prophetic witness, is that we are practicing today what will be in our future that's coming in the new creation. So whatever like secondary identity that we belong to, like, hey, we're a part of this ethnic group, or I come from this place, or I belong to this political party, or to this denomination, or I'm an intellectual, or I'm an outdoor enthusiast, or I drink boneyard and not crux, or whatever the case, we are called to celebrate the same bread and cup. We're coming to the same table of communion, and we're coming to the same Jesus. We celebrate the same king. So I was thinking about this as we were together as a staff team this week, like praying and seeking God for the future of our church. How disappointing would it be for Jesus since he has made the gospel so clear in the scriptures and then he gave the witness of Paul and the book of Acts and the church and all of that. And then Jesus prayed that we would be one as the Father is one with him. And then he showed us what his end game was in Revelation where there's one renewed multi-ethnic family encircling his throne in worship and eating from his table of the new creation and all of that. How disappointing would it be if he returned and we were like, oh shoot, you know what? We didn't really get around to that. We, 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 we skipped that part of the teaching actually. Did you know like they voted for the wrong person to be president? Like, they, they, they voted for the wrong person. Like, are you, like, maybe you don't understand. We don't actually get along because, because I don't really understand their culture. It doesn't really jive or fit with my vibe. And so we just, we, we just we skipped it. We didn't do it. How tragic would that be? When Jesus returns, we want to be prepared. We want to be ready. Like, hey, we were, we were waiting. 
We were expecting, we were anticipating, we couldn't wait. We got started. We know you're making all things new. We know you're making it perfect, but we got started as best as we could. Of course, we're still flawed and all of that, but we made room for one another. We made room for each other. What is your primary identity? See, we can't afford to allow some secondary tribal identity to sabotage our family unity. We can't do it. Economic status, ethnic status. We cannot let it get in the way of Christian family unity. The witness of the gospel depends on it. So I was saying this is a prophetic witness. This is an example to the world. Our unity, despite our differences, brings healing to our world. Our world is tragically polarized. And apart from Jesus, I don't know if there is any way to pioneer genuine peace. I don't think that there is. But we are the ones who should be getting it. Like, come on. Like, we're Jesus people. He stopped at nothing to reconcile people who were his enemies to himself. And so he's just, he's just, we're just following in his footsteps. Anybody should be able to get this. It's us. If anyone should be able to get this, it's us. We are to be an example that like, hey, listen, we know it's rough out there. But when you come in here, you can actually see people who are diverse in every way imaginable, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving them and all of that. Despite our differences, we are one in Christ. So I want to leave you with just four really quick reflections. Um, there's the uh, slide's going to be on the screen behind me. You take a picture of this. You can write this down or whatever. It's probably going to take you more than a few moments to process it. Um, but if we are going to share the gospel outside the church, like we've been talking about, we have to live the gospel inside the church. And so to do that, uh, we need at least four things. We need to forge genuine relationships with people who are different from us. Forge genuine relationships with people who are different from us. We need to listen with curiosity, not judgment. I cannot tell you how many sad conversations I've had in the last couple of years where people are disagreeing with one another but failing to actually listen to what their actual argument is. So we can totally handle active listening. We can do that. We can pay attention and listen with curiosity instead of judgment. And then we can also make this commitment that we won't break table fellowship over secondary identities. We're just not going to do it. And then finally, we love by preferring others whenever possible. We love by preferring others whenever possible. In Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who though he existed in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But then instead he made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant, became obedient to the Father, obedient even unto death. He, he humbled himself and he served us. And that is the pattern of Jesus' love. And we we're called to follow in that same pattern. And I just wonder, as how, how different would our community and our church be if I followed that pattern of generous love and if you followed in that pattern of generous love where we considered others more important than ourselves and we cared about their needs and their preferences above our own. Actually, maturity in Christ is, is about a willingness to surrender preference for the sake of greater unity. That's what maturity actually looks like.
And so we want to demonstrate that maturity in the family of God by being willing to lay down our preferences for the sake of Christian unity. Let's stand together and let's pray. You know, I I began by sharing from Galatians 3. It says that there is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. You are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That was uh, a horrible paraphrase, but that's what it says. And that's not to say that God in the kingdom wants to flatten out all of our distinction and the beauty of your personality and the beauty of your heritage and the beauty of your story and where you've come from. It's not that at all. All that it's saying is, all that he's saying there is that, you know, we all have equal footing before Jesus. There's no front of the line when it comes to those in the family of God. We are all heirs of the family or in the family. We are all full-fledged adopted children of the Most High God. I'm not in the front, you're not in the back, and not vice versa. We have all equal footing before God. And I just want to pray the Holy Spirit would come and fall on us. It's like we read a couple of different places that when believing in Jesus happens, the Holy Spirit comes with great power. So we're just going to just believe that that scripture is for today and for us. We're going to pray over you. Father, we love you. And we just say, gosh, thank you for this beautiful gospel. And it's such good news. And God, we, we commit, um, of course we will fail at times, but we commit that in our deepest desire, our, 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 our heart is that we would follow you in your pattern of self-giving love. That we would be unified with the rest of the family of God. And we want to commit to not break fellowship over secondary identities. Our primary loyalty and allegiance is to you. And if you call these people my sisters and brothers, then that's who they are to me. And so God, before you, we just confess our tribalism and our vilifying and disparaging of others, our refusal to care or get to know cultures that we don't fully understand. And instead, we want to just replace it with genuine love from you, Jesus. And we just pray your Holy Spirit would fall on us. We trust, we believe in the gospel, and we believe that you sent your spirit. And so, God, we just pray your spirit would come. Be magnified, God, in us, I pray. And we're going to come to the table, and we're going to sing a song of heaven. And come to your table, and we're going to sing a song to you. And we're not singing to our own personal Jesus. We're singing to the historic Jesus, who is King of kings, Lord of lords. And you are King of us all. And so we just pray you be glorified as we sing your praise, and that we would be unified as your church as we come together and take the bread and the cup. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, the table is open. There's one here in the front, one in the back. 
um, come grab the elements, go back to your seats, and we'll take it together as one church. Also, I just want to remind you that the prayer wall is open. We'd love to pray for you if you need prayer for any reason. And then let's worship in song to King Jesus, okay? Let's do it.